Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. And just delighted that this evening we're joined by Barry Tesler. Barry Tesler is a warm, compassionate guide with a master's degree in somatic psychology. And for over 20 years, her art of money methodology has helped thousands of people understand and navigate their financial life through one-on-one financial therapy, small groups, community content, and her year-long money school, The Art of Money. Her gentle encouragement and practical tools offer us new avenues for creativity and joy with an abundance of support. Tesla's first book, The Art of Money, was the winner of the 2017 Benjamin Franklin Gold Medal, one of the highest US national awards for excellence in independent publishing. It was also the winner of the 2017 Nautilus Book Award Silver Medal, which honors exceptional literary contributions to spiritual growth, conscious living, and green values. Today, Barry Tesler is with Banyan Books in conversation about her new book, which is called The Art of Money Workbook, a three-step plan to transform your relationship with money. And it's a follow-up to her first book. It's excellent. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the book. Few things in life can feel as stressful and daunting as money and finances. Get ready for that to change. The Art of Money Workbook offers an empowering new framework to create sustainable change and strengthen your relationship with money. Tesla offers a program that integrates practical financial tools with supportive somatic practices to bring more compassion, honesty, and awareness to your relationship with money. What I personally love about Barry's work is that she sees these deeper currents at play in our relationship with money. She uses it as a doorway for us to become more self-aware, to heal our wounds, and to create a life that really works for us, as well as allowing us to actualize the aspects of ourselves that will be helpful to others. If you'd like to learn more about Barry and her work, you can visit her website, which is barrytesler.com. And Barry is spelled B A. R-I, barrytesler.com. So Banyan community, please join me in a warm welcome for Barry Tesler. Barry, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. 
We're excited too. And congratulations on, on this new book. I think it was just released yesterday, wasn't it? It was. It was. Yes. <laughs> You've been celebrating? Yeah. So what did I do yesterday? I got a massage. Then I went out with my family and a girlfriend. And yes, I've been celebrating in, in small little ways. It's different than the first book, right? Where there was a whole book tour and I was at Banyan Books six years ago with, you know, an amazing community showed up. So it's a little different this time. It's going to be a little slower, but um, that pace is nice. And yes, we'll be celebrating all summer. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of excitement around your event when you came to Banyan and uh, your book has been really popular with our community. So it's great to have you again. Thank you. Yeah, it really surprised me to have 70 people <laughs> in the room when I showed up. There are 70 people in my hometown of Boulder, Colorado, you know, so it was wonderful to have the same turnout um, when I went to Vancouver for the first time and I just felt really at home. It was a wonderful event. Yeah. Great. Now, in diving into the book, just just to get into it, uh, in our welcome, in your welcome message at the opening of the book, you write the following. This book is more than just another self-help tool. This money work has the potential to carry us deeper than we expect, beyond personal finances and into the realm of knowing ourselves more authentically and more intimately. So Barry, I'm wondering if you can just give our audience a little bit of context around your overall outlook and your approach to money work and how it can become like a gateway to deeper self-awareness. Yeah, so I have to tell a little bit of my story to share Please. my, you know, give the context and overall, like my perspective on everything. So, you know, I trained as a somatic therapist and this was a long time ago. So I'm in my fifties and I was in my twenties and I went to Nairobi University and was getting my master's in somatic psychology, which I feel saved me to learn how to listen to my body and messages and trust my intuition and trust what my body was telling me and trust my yeses and nos. And, but the topics that I was so excited about at the time were intimacy, couples, sexuality, body, food, grief, and death. You know, I thought those were my topics and I, you know, I really thought that's what I would be working on. And when my student loan came due, when I graduated at the, at the age of 28, it was just a huge moment of, wait a second, did we talk about money as we were training to be psychotherapists? No. How did that happen? You know, how did we not have any conversations about what are the money emotions that come up or what is your money story? And how does that connect to your own history and lineage and strengths and challenges? And, you know, just how do you have a relationship to money, you know, and, and start a private practice? And it was such an obvious missing piece for me that either I was going to run away <laughs> or I was going to face it like I did every other big area of life. And this time it was, well, now I have all this training and all of these tools and all of these practices that I'm steeped in, both as a somatic therapist, how to check into the body, but also Naropa is a Buddhist-based graduate program, right? So even though I'm not a practicing Buddhist, there were beautiful rituals and um, qualities that I knew if I was gonna create a methodology around money, that I had to bring all of that with me. So 
you know, the methodology had to include creativity. It had to include deeper meaning. It had to include playfulness and ritual, right? All these things that were so important to me. So it wasn't like going to be boring and dry like I thought money was. It was, okay, we're going to create tools and practices. And, you know, at first I really thought I was the only one with money stuff, you know, that I was the only one with money shame or the only one with money, whatever. And I looked around with fo at folks from all different lineage backgrounds and, um, you know, different income levels and class backgrounds. And we all had strengths around money. We all had challenges around money. And there was so much that we did not learn for most of us in grade school and up. So my whole methodology was put together because I needed it. And then I looked around and every single person that I knew, you know, needed, um, a, a different approach because the approaches that were out there were more tough love, were more there's one way or the highway. There's more, you know, like there was a lot of shame and blame around how you manage money. And so I just took everything I could and created the money healing, money practices, and money maps. And those are the three phases that there's not one without the other. It's not as though you learn what your money emotions are and money story, and then you're done. It's not as though you just learn a bookkeeping system and then you're done, you know, or you're just start, you know, think, thinking about how to make good money decisions and you're done. All three phases, the money healing, money practices, maps, needs to all be talking, working with each other. You know, we may have learned parts of it, but not the others. You know, my financial folks, they never learned about money emotions or how to have a loving compassionate conversation with yourself or your spouse. So to complete, there's so, you know, I've been teaching this for over 21 years. So there's a lot, but just to complete, like the whole methodology came out of a need for, I'm only seeing tough love around money management. I'm seeing that it's not creative, that there's no tools and practices that under, I get, you know, or that makes sense to me as a creative person. And I just knew that I needed to infuse it with love and compassion and understanding and everything that I was learning as a therapist at the time in a Buddhist environment. And that is also known as trauma-informed, right? Trauma-informed wasn't a thing. It was all somatic psychology. And now, you know, trauma work and somatic experiencing like started really coming to be in 1988, you know, when I was graduating. And so, but everything that I learned and how I teach the methodology, like this has to happen in baby steps. You have to listen to your timing. All those things are now called trauma-informed, but they were simply slowing down, listening to your body. And so I bring all of that to helping people bring more awareness and understanding to their relationship to money and, and, you know, and all that that touches. Wonderful. Thank you. That, that, I think that gives us a really good context to, to dive in a little deeper now. And you, you, you touched on the, what you call the three phases of the art of money. Yeah. Maybe you can just give like a brief overview of those three phases before we kind of go into each one a little more deeply. Does that work? Sure. Okay. So my specialty is not being concise, but I will do more. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because there's always layers. So money healing is really about you know, understanding what are the emotions that come up for you. The same emotions that come up in any big area of life come up around money. Everything from shame to anger, anxiety, sadness, regret, 
guilt to joy, to excitement, to hope, right? And everywhere in between, right? So it's understanding what are the emotions that come up? How, you know, can you learn to sit with the emotions? Name them, understand them. Where do they come from, right? You know, all the deeper layers of therapy work, right? But also that leads to, you know, one, and for me, that's the body check-in. And I want, we have to talk more about that, right? So how do I do this in a nutshell? It's all about understanding your money emotions. It's understanding deeper layers of what your money story is, where it comes from, what you learned, what you didn't learn, what, what patterns are healthy today, what are unhealthy, where do you need forgiveness? Where do you need some money healing rituals? So the money healing is just is doing the deeper therapy work, right? And it doesn't mean right. you stay there forever, but it means you do some of it. You do some of it, and then you move into the money practices. And it doesn't mean you're done one day with the money healing and you have no more money emotions ever again, but they can certainly decrease in intensity. You can learn how to work with them. And money practices is all about creating a self-care practice around money. So whether that's five minutes a day and you have a money date, or it's, you know, 15 minutes every few days, you're creating a practice, you're crafting a practice that works for you based on your personality, your style, what you need. You know, some for some people, it's five minutes a day to create the habits and the grooves, but it's also learning a bookkeeping system, knowing your numbers, understanding you know, your income and your spending patterns and, you know, knowing that there's usually a judger that comes up quickly of, oh, you spend what on what instead of let me get curious here. So money practices is creating a self-care practice around money. You have money dates. We can talk more about money dates. Mm -hmm. um, and you create, you know, you add in your values. I can say more about that. And you start looking at who's on your financial support team. What are the players, bookkeeper, accountant, financial coach, financial planner, and on and on. To complete the third phase, Money Maps is all about what phase of life are you in and what is priority now and what are the goals that you're going for and then what are the actual numbers. And, you know, I like to rename everything. So instead of a budget, I call it a money map or a map of intention. I'm really big on naming because... It just feels better to rename a lot of these things. Um, and then this phase is also about how do you know if you're making a good money decision? How do you make a good money decision in small moments when you're at the clothing consignment store, when you're buying a car, if you buy a home one day? There's, you know, so what, what sets of questions do you bring to those moments? And do you know your numbers? And, and you know, but when you're done with all three phases, then you know how to make good money decisions, you know? And I teach this in a year. I teach this in a year long program, but it's, it's the whole first book is the whole methodology and my stories, my own and the community stories and the tools. And then the second book is 200 pages of wonderful journaling questions that, you know, I've been creating since I used to teach 10 person groups in my teeny little living room in an apple orchard, you know, when I lived in California. So that's, those are the three phases that I've been fine tuning and learning what I left out and learning what I need to add in by teaching small groups and now much larger groups for years and years and years fine tuning. That's a great overview. Thank you. I think that'll give our audience like a, a little bit of a grasp on what we're working with here just in general. So 
phase one money healing yeah you really you talked you mentioned the body check-in can you can you illuminate for us this this body check-in process and what do the body what do the emotions have to show us about our relationship to money and our money interactions yeah so I think with this community that most folks will have some version of a body check-in that they already do, right? So whether you call it grounding, a meditation <laughs> practice, and you know you can bring it pared down to 30 seconds, a minute, and a body check-in doesn't have to look in any certain way. The way that I do it is usually 30 seconds, a minute, a few minutes where I'm checking in on a few levels. So on a physical level, what's going on, right? How am I seated? Legs crossed, open, shoulders up, shoulders down. Then I move on to what are the sensations happening in my body? So where's their movement? Where's their stillness? Where does it feel tight or restrictive? Just noticing on a sensation level. And please know some of us get sensation level, some of us don't. We all feel and think and you know, understand ourselves in different ways. So for some of us, physical level makes sense. For some of us, sensation level makes sense. The next level is what are the emotions that are present, right? So is it one? Is it a couple? Usually when people start to do the, the, the money work, they're both very excited, but they're also pretty afraid as well. And so they have both of those going on, right? So there's no right or wrong. It's just getting curious, what emotion or emotions are present? I'll talk more about that. Then the next level is breathing. So where in your body, how deep is your breath? Is it more up in your throat? Is it more in your solar plexus, your chest? Then solar plexus, is it down in your belly? Again, there's no right or wrong. A body check-in is simply being curious. What's going on on a physical level? sensation level, emotional level, breathing level. And then I always like to end a body check-in with what is one little adjustment that I can make right now that would help me feel more calm or more resourced or more present. You know, it could be doing a little shoulder shimmy, lowering the shoulders. It could be loosening your jaw. Um, it could be, you know, seeing if you can get your breath a little deeper in your body. Okay, so the body check-in is something to do before you're going to have a money conversation or make a money decision, right? It's in the moment when you're having the money conversation, when you're going online to look at your numbers, and it could be a body checking could be after as a debriefing. What did I learn? What did that remind me of? What can I do different next time? So do you see there's layers to a body check-in? And it's a practice, it's not one and done. And it's something to be, you know, to invite in. Every, before you're gonna have a money conversation, see if you can check in, how are you doing? What's going on? Where's your breath? What emotions are present? Any little adjustment you need to make. Now, sometimes we don't remember before, but we'll remember in the heat of the moment when we're having a conversation, you know, when we're telling a client our fees, when we're talking with our honey and we're, you know, feeling, really agitated or horrified that they're different than us, you know, we're, you know, or they spend different. Of course they spend different. We, you know, may have the same values on the surface, but we're going to spend differently or earn differently or save differently. So for me, the body check-in is a practice 
that you bring to all the daily money moments and interactions. And you're first just trying to gather data. Like, who am I here? You know, what is my relationship to money? Hello? You know, let's have some tea, that metaphor. Let's sit down. Sometimes we feel calm when we're checking in. Other times we're in the heat of the moment, feeling totally anxious, you know, in the car dealership, having to make a quick money decision or feeling like we do, right? So for me, there's so many reasons why we do it. It can slow you down. It can help you get present. It can start to bring more awareness to all those levels, layers in your body. But then it starts to lead to, well, what are the memories that are coming up? And what are the stories that are coming up? Oh, it's reminding me of my mom sitting at the dining room table, really agitated, paying the bills. Oh, it reminds me of my parents fighting behind the closed door. Oh, you know, so it starts to lead to memories and money stories and us starting to sort out, you know, what we learned from our family of origin and grandparents and so on. And, you know, so that's the beginning. But the, it, for me, when people say, what's number one, like name me one beginning step, I don't say learn a bookkeeping system first or tracking tool. I say invite body check-ins. Start having a body check-in practice. And I would imagine everyone on this call has a body check-in practice in some way. I know meditation can be a little different, but it's bringing it down a little bit more. And it's just taking a few moments to check in and it's doing it with your relationship to money. So it's a practice that everyone knows and it's inviting it into this area of life. That's great, yeah. And you know, you, you were just touching on, on money, our money story as well. And I, I wanted to ask you about money story. Uh, maybe you can just define it for us, but I also wanted to ask you if you could elaborate a little more on how, how things like privilege or access to education and resources, differences in physical, mental abilities, how do those affect our, our patterns around money or, or our money story? Okay, those are two very separate questions. So let's okay. discuss the first one first. Sure, so, sure. So money story is simply how we relate to money. Our relationship to earning, spending, saving, giving, loaning, donating, redistributing, redistributing resources, investing, right? All of that. Um, we create a money story very early on and it can change. So, you know, our past does not have to equal our future. It influences it. We can write a new money story. We can write new chapters. We can create or step into a financial identity as a young kid. And I'll give a story and we can change that, right? So our money stories are based on, again, our lineage, our culture, our ethnicity, our families, our family's history, right? Um, did they immigrate to the country? Did they escape from somewhere? Where, you know, what's, right, their story and which influences our parents' story, which influences us. So there's always beautiful things and there's always challenges across the board, right? I don't want to give it percentages. Some people have more or less, but what I see is that everyone has challenges and struggles and everyone has beautiful things as well, or successes or triumphs or things that they've had to overcome. So, but a money story is also based on our personality and Enneagram, right? And I've been waiting for the money and Enneagram book to come out for years. I mean, it, tell me if it exists. 
So uh, I love Enneagram, but let me tell you a short little story. It's personal, but gives it, it. So early on, I'm the oldest of three kids. So I was given the title of spender from really early on, simply because I loved a lot of things. I wanted to buy my mom the ring at the school fair. I wanted the candy. I want like I had a lot of excitement and passion for life. My younger siblings were more savers from really early on. My brother like was the bank. I think I borrowed money from him when he was five and I was, you know, 10 years old. And so how did that happen? That happened everything from our personalities to the how the three of us were being raised in the same environment, but we kind of all took on slightly different roles. Now, I, on some level of being a spender, right, there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, can go to any of them can go to an extreme and become unhealthy. Even the saver can go to the extreme and become unhealthy. But I grew up thinking I'm a saver. I mean, a spender and something's wrong with that. So it wasn't until my 30s that I started learning, I need to learn how to save. And this is a muscle that I need to practice, right? And I needed to work on income and livelihood, which I, you know, which I did. But it was something that I really had to embrace and learn that, guess what? I can be both. You can be a spender and a saver. And I'm really simplifying these financial identities right now. But even recently, I've a, I'm very close with my mom now, and we weren't at different points, but, and we talk about everything money and we didn't for years. And she's very frugal in some ways and very generous in others. But I said to her, hey, mom, over a Sunday dinner, do you know that you can be a spender and a saver? And I'm both now. And she said, huh, you know, I guess you're right. And so it's just, you can have a financial identity that you take on as a response or reaction, or just like, this is a natural thing that's happening at the age of eight, but we can grow into other parts of ourselves. We can change our story. We can embrace new financial identities when some things aren't working or when it's not the full picture yet. So that's a very simplification of how a money story or financial identity can be created early on. And then things can change, you know, over the course of the years and you can step into new roles that you take on. That's a little bit about that. Right. And, and just to let our audience know, Barry gives a lot, just a ton of amazing uh, practices and um, uh, workbook exercises in this book to really uncover our money story and to see what's helped, where our strengths and our weaknesses are, and then to look at shifting that story and creating new money stories, which is so great. Well, the whole workbook, if it, so it went from like, it's going to be a journal, you know, to some cute quotes to, I've been doing this for so long, there's so much journaling exercises that it's now a workbook. So everything I'm saying, there's, you know, quite a few journaling exercises on understanding how to find what set of emotions come up like name the last money interaction that you had and what money emotion came up and what did you notice and and what does that remind you of and, to, and you know and then let's talk about your money story so what did you learn from your mother what did you learn from your grandparents what about your siblings and your role what about any religion did that teach you anything or spiritual practice so there are journaling questions that take you through both understanding what set of money emotions come up, tools on how to work with them, money story, and on and on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of chapter four, um, you talk about value and self-worth. You write that uh, under-earning is one of the clearest symptoms of not feeling and claiming your value. 
And this is based on so much more than your income alone. I really love how you make that distinction. It's that under earning isn't just about our financial earning. I'm wondering if you can talk about this process of finding our intrinsic sense of value and different ways it might reflect in our life. Yeah, so understanding this came up like for, it was a thread from day one, you know, so 21 years ago in that first group of 10 people, I started noticing self-worth value for a lot of folks was deeply connected to how much money we had in the bank or how much we were charging or our income at that time or right and on and on. And yes, in the culture and, and within capitalism, like we need to earn a living and we need to you know, either have a job or, and, and ask for a salary or have our own businesses and work with our pricing and all of that. So it can get confusing, right? Um, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to help people pull that apart. So our net worth is not our self-worth, even though there are some people in the world who say your net worth equals your self-worth. And I say, absolutely not, right? So there's so many exercises of understanding, you know, how you're defining your own value, what that means to you. And I don't think it's like you're done one day. Like it's something that you're cultivating day in and day out. It's not you wake up and you're like, I'm, you know, I know my worth. I mean, we do, but it's, it's a journey. It's a practice like everything else. So there's layers to this. There's layers of, you know, one, identifying what your value is. So, um, you know, I, one of the things we do in, in the bookkeeping things, I have people rename the category. So it's not just rent or mortgage. It's on a deeper level. What are you really trying to do? And you can't go so deep there. Is it home? Is it sanctuary? Is it love shack? So that's one way where I have people bring their values into their bookkeeping, you know, so you can start to literally see is your income and your spending and your giving in alignment with your values, right? I also do an exercise um, where I have them write out, it's in the, it's in the journal, right? What are your intrinsic assets? So yes, I, I, lo I love helping people learn how to price things well. Sometimes we increase our prices, sometimes we decrease. I'm also not of the mindset, always increase, right? It depends on what you're doing and what kind of year you're having. So here's a little side teaching, is that we're not always trying to grow more or make more. Some years we do that and that's wonderful, but in a long life, there's ebbs and flows. And in your money life, there's ebbs and flows right? So some years we're earning more and making more and giving more and saving more. Other years we're trying to just live within our means. Other years there's a health crisis. We're dipping into savings or we're dipping into 0% credit card, right? Used wisely. So intrinsic values are starting to list out like on a deep, deep level, who are you? What is your native genius? People call it. What are your superpowers? People call it. Um, what makes you unique? What makes you, you? And having people just spend time writing that out if they haven't already. And maybe you do that every year or every few years, right? So this is not a static thing, how much you charge, what your business model is. So, so I'm, I'm doing this on a few levels. You see, adding your values into your relationship to money, 
also identifying on a deeper level what your value is. And then here's the thing, last thing. How are you defining if you're successful around money this year or in your past or in your future? And we need more than just the dollar amount or your income level or your savings or your retirement. That's part of it, but there's so many other layers too. Are you caring for elderly parents? Are you caring for animals? What is your work in the world? Are you, you know, taking care of, are you in a health journey? There's, there's so many layers to defining. Are we having a successful life? And it might not even a meaningful life, a valuable life. You see, so I'm, I'm just beginning here. I'm going to pause because I know, but you see how this goes. Yeah. There's so much precision in this, in this it's a contemplative process of just layer after layer, isn't it? And there's so much nuance and precision to how we define our success and relationship around money. And I, and it's really a holistic thing, the way you frame it. It's just wonderful. Yes. I'll give one more example there. You know, for some people, it's, they learn how to have loving and compassionate conversations with their spouse around money. And that is you know, they realize that's one of the ways that they feel successful or they're teaching their children something that they did not learn growing up because their parents didn't know how to teach them, you know, so they're teaching something new. There's so many ways to define, are we having a healthy, savvy, creative, meaningful relationship to money? That includes the numbers, but there's more. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so phase two, Barry, is money practices. Yeah. What is a money date? Yeah. So money dates is something that, again, just a fun way of saying, in that, just sitting down and, and having a date with money and, you know, saying, what do you need right now? What's going on? What is one next step I can take? But here's the thing, like everything it has to be more meaningful or creative, right? So I'm always lighting my candles for my money date. You can, you do your own version, but here's some examples. I light my candles. I get out my oils. I get out my really dark chocolate. You know, I have my tea or coffee or water. Some people like to play music. I mean, I've heard everything from classical to Beyonce to, you know, whatever you need to get you in the mood. And now if, I mean, I really, any kind of music, because every day is different, what's going on. You always want to start with a body check-in. Some money dates may just be checking in. What's going on right now? What am I afraid of? What am I thinking about? What am I remembering? What, what, you know, what's coming up around money for me? Other money dates are more practical, like, oh, I'm going to go online and check my balances and I'm going to go a little deeper and see if there's any money leaks, you know, that are happening, like any reoccurring charges that, you know, I don't want, I don't want to use anymore. I don't want to, I, I, you know, I'm ready to get rid of them, you know, or you need to reach out to a new bookkeeper because you want to learn a bookkeeping system or a tracking system and you you know, my husband one night just taught himself how to do mint or taught himself how to do a few bookkeeping systems. And I needed someone to hold my hand with a box of tissue. And I'm not, I'm not being metaphorical here <laughs> and chocolate, 
over three to six months and slowly learn how to do it, you know, and it blew my mind that I could learn. And with a good teacher, I think anyone can learn, right? But it takes time. So money dates are just sitting down for five minutes and 15 minutes and a couple, you know, building up to a couple times a week. It could be, you know, learning a bookkeeping system and doing your tracking, or it could be twice a week, you just check in, what's going on with my business right now? Um, do I need to invoice people? Do I need to look at my business model structure? Do I need to have a money? So money dates can be with yourself. They can be with your partner. They can be with family when your kids are, you know, a little older. We have money dates with our son who's 13. We've had them for a while. They can be spontaneous. They can be planned. They can be out for dinner. So it's, you see, it's really just sitting down and saying, hello, money, what do you need today? And yeah, you may need to start making your lists, but it's really creating a relationship with money on a, you know, emotional, psychological level through the body check-ins on a practical level. And then there's certainly spiritual parts of it as well around what I call spiritual parts around giving, donating, reparations, redistributing resources, right? There, there's a whole piece around that. that I, I think there's some of that in the book as well. Yes, yeah. In the first book and second book. So do you see it's, it's a practice? It's a self-care practice. That's how I look at it. One last metaphor here. I see money like a garden. So it needs to be watered, but not overwatered. It needs attention. It needs care. You need to figure out how to have a good relationship instead of totally ignoring it, sticking your head in the sand or hypervigilantly paying attention to it all the time. So for many people who mostly ignore it, it's maybe you do five minutes a day, you build that muscle, you add in some playfulness, you add in some candles, some music, right? You, you make it so that it's something that you practice and you you know, and then even monthly, maybe you sit down with a bookkeeper and you meet with your bookkeeper and they, that bookkeeper helps you review, you know, your cash flow and helps you learn what's working, what's not. So I'm just giving a teeny beginning. There's layer, it can go on and on, but, and there can be so many different, it could be daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly money dates and money practices that you craft based on your personality what you want, adding in a little ritual, deeper meaning, some fun, all of that. Barry, the way that you approach this work is so refreshing, I've got to say, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, aggressive approaches from what I've seen to how people are, are training around money, like this millionaire mindset and, and this kind of thing. I just wanted to, to say that just a huge, um, a deep bow to you for the groundedness and the perspective that you're bringing. I think it's really important. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Based. I, yeah, I can. Okay. I can, I can continue, but you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to encourage everyone too. There's, there's something when I went to your website, if you're interested in learning a bit more about Barry and you're not sure about, you know, if you want to sign up for her year long course, you can go to her website and there's this, uh, I forget what it's called now. It's like, a, it's a week long email course 
where you get an email in your inbox every day and you take you take the student through this kind of journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's called the pocket map. And it takes you through the three phases, money healing, money practices, money maps. And so it's just teaching you what the three phases are. It asks you some journaling questions, right? It just is, is giving you a really good taste of what the three phases are um, that are, you know, it, it, my first book is 300 pages, tons of stories, tools. And the second book is 200 pages of journaling questions, you know, with all these transition little teachings. Um, and I have a blog and I have a podcast and, but the year long program is if you, you know, want to be in community and, and get support that way. But I also, I just started a mentor program for other therapists and coaches and financial professionals. And it's a much smaller group. We just started last week of 40 compared to the, the year long program has 250 to 500 students each year. There's lots of support people that, you know, alumni that support that. But yeah, if you just go to the website, you can sign up for my email to get a little taste um, and go from there or enjoy the workbook. And yeah, or you can get this wonderful book too. Okay, phase three, yeah. money maps. Yeah. Now there's, there's a lot in this, but I really wanted to ask you about, you talk about the five money areas and my experience, so I'll just quickly name them. The first is earning an income, then two is spending and expenses, three is saving, four is debt, repayment, and five is investing. So my experience has been that there's this fine balance, particularly to be had, be had be, between earning and spending. Once I got spending under control, then I could really focus in on saving and investing. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your approach to this sort of dance between all these five money areas and how we determine what to prioritize. So interesting. Okay. What if I shift gears into another five thing that I do? Okay. Also part of money maps because we'll just see. Okay. So the thing that I, I mean, we do a whole piece in the workbook, in the first book, it's what do you have to, I mean, I'll just say, what do you have to work on? Like, are you someone who is an under earner? And under earning can happen, you know, when I was finished my graduate program, I was still working as a social worker and I had the master's, but I was making $11 an hour, right? So I could not get a massage. I could not get good chocolate. I could not, right? So clearly in that moment, I had to somehow figure out how to move through a money ceiling and earn more money. Even though I had the, I was like, I got the master's. Why am I not making more money? And so I had to start creating thinking out of the box and I actually took a little detour and that's when I learned bookkeeping and then, you know, started doing some bookkeeping and made 13 an hour. And then I got bumped up to 15 and then someone taught me QuickBooks and said they would pay me 20 an hour and then move me to 25 after a few months. And so, I mean, I never imagined that I would have gone that route and it seemed like such an odd detour, but I was either going to become an advocate for social workers and get us valued more in the marketplace, you know, or somehow I went through this other, you know, this other way and got more creative. And I, so some of us need to work on earning and that's a simple example, right. And to move through a money ceiling and there's nothing wrong with that. And that's, you know, as a therapist or even in spiritual communities, we're not supposed to want money, strive for money, talk about money. 
But, you know, again, it's not like, I mean, some people may want to make a million dollars or more. Some people may want to make the six or seven figures or everyone's different, what phase of life, where they live, what their work is in the world, how, you know, there's, there's so many different ways to look at it. So for some of us, it's earning. For some of us, it's really getting in more of the spending, like really fine tuning, you know, what do we want to keep? And what's negotiable and what's absolutely not. You know, a lot of people like will not negotiate their good food, like good quality food, local. It doesn't have to be organic, but every, right? So for some people, that's like just a top, top, top priority that they're not willing to let go of, but other areas they are, right? So for me, it used to be dining out before, you know, it's, it's coming back a little because that was community. That was going out with girlfriends. That was going out with my family. That was breaking bread, you know, it was just top priority for me. So in the spending, it's, you know, just what can be negotiated, what can't, where do we feel we have judgment about the way we're spending or, I mean, I can go through all of these, right? In so much detail and I'm not even getting, I, I am going to mention the other thing I want to mention, but I just, we go through all of them and it's, again, what do you need to work on? Because some people need to really focus on earning. Um, and increasing, but I also then have really high earners who are ignoring, um, not so much where they're spending, but they're, they're not paying attention to it. Right. So they're just like, make more money, make more money. That's going to solve it. And it's wonderful. They're, they, so their gift is they can, they're really high earners. That's easy for them. And it's not easy for everyone where they need to really get in is they don't want to get into the nitty gritty. So hire a bookkeeper and then sit down with that bookkeeper once a month print out those reports and really get in there. And yes, make choices. Most of us have to make choices. Most of us, there's a limit. We can't do everything, but we get to then choose like what are the buckets we wanted to go in? Like these are my priorities of where I wanna spend and my values. I wanna save a certain amount. It could be a percentage. For some people, they just need to tuck away the saving, like put it over, you know, and then they can spend the, ch the chunk that they have, like for, we have to kind of be sneaky and just like <laughs> send it over so that it's done and we're honoring our future selves. So you see, I have high earners that are over, that are going into debt because they're just not looking. They're not bringing a presence to it. Their, their solution is just make more, right? We all have blind spots. We all have things that we need to learn. We have things that are working and we have things that that are not working. So I can go through each of these, you know, um, in detail. I will just to complete this by say one thing. <laughs> Most of my decisions are based on this equation, time, money, energy, family, and health. Time, money, energy, family, and health. And there's not like 25% here, 5% here, but anytime I'm making a life decision, big decision, am I going to write a second book? You know, it, I always come back to the time, money, energy, family, health, however you define that. And that's a big piece. I don't know if that's in this workbook. There's always more. Is that in the workbook? <laughs> I don't, which, you know, sorry, you know, which part? The... The equation of time, money, energy, family, and health and working. I don't recall seeing that in here. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah it's, that's it's, new it's, to me and it's beautiful. It's in blog articles. It's in the program. Mm. I mean, you know, 
when you write a book, it's done and then it goes to editing and it doesn't come out for a year. So there's there's always new pieces to the puzzle. Did I answer your question at all or just give a you little? You did. You totally answered my question and, and you took it to the next level. It was a perfect answer. Um, and we've got some really great questions here from the audience if you're ready to, to go to some of those. I am. Okay, awesome. Let's do it. There's one here from Sabina and there's, there's a couple of questions in here. So I'll, I'll read it to you and then we can sort of get into it. Uh, Sabina says, in a couple situation where one person is more relaxed about money and the other experiences deep money anxiety and insecurities, how can the couple help each other with body check-ins and many of the things you mentioned? Right. Money so, often seems to be one of the reasons why couples break up. What would be the best approach to prevent such disharmony for them? Thank you, Barry. Yeah. So yes, on the surface, it's the reason, number one reason for divorce, but it's not money or, you know, it's that we don't know how to talk about money, right? We don't know how to have money dates where we really hear each other. Um, we, we, it's about that there's all these deeper themes that come up around enoughness, self-worth, power, um, um, responsibility, safety, security, right? With couples, two people come together, and even if on the surface their values seem the same, as I mentioned earlier, the way they spend, give, earn, all of it is different. You may share some similar things, but for the most part, you're going to be different in some of those. The other thing is that couples polarize, like she's saying. So, right? Sometimes really extreme, sometimes not as much. One person has a lot of anxiety, thinks about the future, is trying to plan, trying to imagine every scenario, like just really more hypervigilant. The other person's like, it's all going to be fine, you know, or I don't want to deal with this and I'm going to go over here. So that's normal, I think. And I'm going to give you some tools on how to work with it. So the way that I work with couples dates is a few things. I mean, I have so many blog pieces around couples and how to have a different kind of money date. So you don't jump to, you know, whipping out the spreadsheets right away or looking at the numbers right away. Number one is story time. So a money date for a couple is you invite, you're saying like, we're going to have a new kind of money date. We're going to start out with 30 minutes. We're each going to get 15 minutes. One person gets to share stories from their childhood, what money means to them, what emotions come up, the anxiety, right? They share and the other person sits in their own body check-in over here. They're not responding. They're not commenting. They're not going into blame shame. They're sitting in their own body check-in. Then you switch. The other person just sits in their own seat. They share their story, not in, re you know, they share a little bit about where they come from, what the environment they grew up was life. Like they go through some of the questions in the journal, in the workbook, right? And you could take three questions and you each get 15 minutes to share your responses and you don't respond to each other. And you do a few dates like that where you just hear each other out, okay? From there, it can move into... Well, maybe I'm going to, maybe we have a little five minutes each of responding and we try to stick to I, you know, I statements, I hear you, this is what I think I hear, or this is what comes up for me, right? Really starting to learn and understand your differences 
Because at the end of the day, there's no one who's right. There's no one way that's right. You each have things to bring to the table, right? So money date number two may be talking about values and that you do spend differently. So I had to do a lot of work because I was back in the day horrified. My husband liked big ticket items, like a big expensive road bike. And he was a little horrified that I liked my acupuncture and self-care and facial lotion so much, right? One time we added up two years of my self-care and lotions and, and it equaled his road bike. Well, we, you see, so there are conversations about the different ways that you spend. And then the third part of a money date would be now who's on what? Who's going to do the bookkeeping, right? And it could shift. I did the bookkeeping for years and one day my husband came in. Or you bring in a bookkeeper who's gonna hold space with you or a financial coach to sit down with you and help you review everything. Because again, one person may be the planner. They like the visioning. They, that's the part they wanna talk about. The other person wanna talk about their emotions, right? I'll tell one couple story and hopefully, so female, male, female couple, he came from a traditional finance background. She was more creative yoga now in real estate, mom. And he was like, I know everything because I have the finance training. That's my background. And he kept whipping out the spreadsheets, trying to show her. And she was like, get those away from me. And it devolved into tears and swearing and fighting and running off, slamming doors, right? And he was so skeptical about like, she finally said, I'm going to do Barry's thing. I want you to come with me. And he was like, what is she going to teach me? I know everything, you know? And he learned that he thought he was the best teacher for her, but he's not because he doesn't know everything. Because in his finance training, they didn't talk about money emotions or money stories, right? Also, she didn't want to learn his spreadsheet. It didn't work for the way she thinks. She wanted to learn a different bookkeeping system and tracking tool on her own with her own trainer. I think she learned Quicken. It was so empowering for her, right? They started with those money dates of just talking about childhood, where they came from, different money stories, different backgrounds. It all became clearer and clearer how they were shaped and how their financial identities or money stories. They got to learn that they're different. They got to each learn they have different styles. They got to each eventually come together and have those loving, compassionate money dates and money conversations with each other. That's my short answer. Um, I have so many blog articles on this and it, there's, there's money dates probably in both stuff in both the workbook and in my first book for couples. Yeah, yes. and again, Barry's website, Jacob's already posted in the chat, but uh, I'll repeat it. It's barrytesler.com and Barry's spelled B-A-R-I. Tesler is with two S's, T-E-S-S-L-E-R. Tons of great resources on there. I was looking at your website as well, Barry. Now, we've got time, I think, for one more audience question. I just want to remind everyone, we're talking to Barry Tesler about her newest book, The Art of Money Workbook, A Three-Step Plan to Transform Your Relationship with Money. And I, I want to, oh, and there's the first one too, The Art of Money. And we're that, that image from the cover of the first book, there's a huge poster in the window at Banyan Books. It's been there for years, probably since when you first came to when it first came out and uh, and everybody at Banyan loves Barry Tesla, I can tell you that. Now, I just wanna take a minute quickly to thank our live audience, everyone who shows up live. It's so great to have you here um, creating these events with us. So thank you for your questions and your comments. It's, it's really great to have you here. 
A big thanks to Jacob Steele as well, who's always here in the background uh, coordinating everything. He's our podcast producer, and he's responsible for all of the guests that we get, among many other things, for Banyan Books. So thanks, Jacob. Okay, we have one more question here from Jill. Jill says, thank you very much for your work and your writing. The art of money helped me to recover after leaving an, a marriage to someone who is financially abusive. I now have a healthy relationship with money. My question is this, when you go into investing, do you talk about practical ways to invest or a person's relationship to investing? Yeah, it's not my specialty. So I always refer to colleagues that I've been collaborating with for years and years and years. Um, I also have tons of interviews where I interview folks on socially responsible investing and social justice investing. And, you know, a lot of those are in the program, but some of those are on my podcast. And so th there are so many different parts of, you know, so many different specialties within your relationship to money, like estate planning and school loans and how do you work with debt? And I have wonderful colleagues and relationships that I've developed for years and folks that I trust and I interview them and they're, you know, they're like-minded and they're brilliant. Um, so while I don't get into the nitty gritty of that, I have a wonderful referral list and I have some interviews that you can easily find on my podcast. Um, Christopher Peck is my financial planner who does socially responsible investing and the interview with Rachel Robichotti and her firm on, she coined the term social justice investing um, is just a, such an important and beautiful interview as well. And those are all public. So, so go find them and then go to their websites and choose one of them. And if you need a referral list, you know, like th these are the kind of things you just send a note to my team on my website, you go through my contact page. I have a wonderful, um, VA Allie. She's been with me for seven years. I'm so lucky or six, six or seven years, I know, six or seven years. And she responds to everyone in the community and she'll send you our referral list if you want them. Most of the folks are in US, but some in Canada. That's great. That's great info. Thanks. And again, her website's barrytesler.com. Now there's just a nice comment here from Laura that says, Barry, this session is very contemplative and refreshing indeed. You're so inspirational and I really love your spiritual approach to money. I'm going to Banyan Books tomorrow Yay. to purchase your book. Yay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks for that, Laura. Yeah. Um, Barry, any, any final thoughts, anything you want to share with us about things you have upcoming or just final thoughts you want to share with people at all about money relationship? Mm, I would say everyone invite yourself, start practicing a body check-in, right? Tomorrow, you'll have a money moment and you'll go, oh, body check-in, okay. And you might remember before, or you might remember in the heat of the moment, you might need to go take a break, walk around the block, go drink some water, or you might remember after. So please start like adding that in step one. Um, please, I mean, these, these are my babies. I have a 13-year-old human son. I have three male cats and one puppy who's also male, but my books are, are girls. They're, they're <laughs> um, these are some of my babies too. So please go to Banyan and 
go there and say hello for me. I wish I could be there live like I was six years ago. And please go enjoy these books. And the workbook is tiny enough that you can carry it around with you. And I thought it was going to be bigger, but it's really, it's something you can fully write in. And there's this wonderful, let's see, a sunflower yellow color. Where are you? So oh, I really, yeah. I wanted even more color, but they got some sunflower and some gold in there and gold on the front cover. Um, yeah, so please just go enjoy all of that and then come to my website. And, you know, if you want to get on my email list to get a taste, even more of the three phases, go enjoy my blog, you know, go enjoy my podcast, find me on Instagram or Facebook. And then lastly, I, I you know, I do my year long program will open again in September. Um, and it's for lay folks, but there's always therapists and coaches and financial folks in there. And then next year, because I'm, I'll, I'll do the mentor program again, which is like thrilling to me. I haven't, I have, I've been wanting, I've been asked to do a certification for program for years and it's not that it's a mentoring program, which feels better for me. But this is a, now that I'm in my fifties, any women out there post-menopause, I used to, <laughs> you'll understand it's thrilling. I'm in menopause. Um, it's been a huge part of my journey. And so I have more energy now and can look out, you know, in the world after having to like be in bed with my kitties. So there's just, I, I'm, I'm coming out again. So find me in all the places and Ross and Jacob, thanks so much. And Banyan Books, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom, celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy.
Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Today, I'm very excited to be discussing this new book titled How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World. Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. It's a collection of 26 essays by experts in different fields uh, around the study of psychedelics. How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World explores the immense healing intelligence of nature, the wisdom of ancient indigenous prophecies and shamanic practices, the importance of the divine feminine for environmental regeneration, and the crucial role of psychedelics and entheogenic plants in initiating transformations of consciousness. Our four guests today, starting with Belinda Eracho, who is of Diné or Navajo and Ashiwi, Pueblo of Zuni descent. Her maternal clan is one who walks around and she was born of the Zuni Pueblo people. She is the wisdom carrier, healer and founder of Kalogi LLC focused on cultural and traditional teaching and inner healing and is an international speaker on various topics impacting Native American communities in the United States. Belinda is a board member of the Church of the Eagle and the Condor, a program advisor for Naropa University, and a Native American traditional advisor for Sound Mind. If you'd like to learn more about Belinda Aracho and her work, you can visit her website, which is kalogi.com, and I'll spell that K-A-A-L-O-G-I-I.com. Our next panelist will be joining via speakerphone is Christopher M. Bache, PhD, who is a professor emeritus in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown State University in Youngstown, Ohio. He's also adjunct faculty at the California Institute of Integral Studies, emeritus fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and on the advisory council of Groff Legacy Training. He's also the author of four books, including his most recent, LSD and the Mind of the Universe, Diamonds from Heaven. If you'd like to learn more about Chris and his work, you can visit his website, which is www.chrisbeish.com. Our next distinguished guest is Dr. Dennis McKenna, brother of Terence McKenna, who is a true psychedelic elder. Among his many engagements and accomplishments, he has conducted research in the entho, in enth, excuse me, enth, ethnopharmacology for over 40 years, is a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute and was a key investigator of the Hoaska Project, the first biomedical investigation of ayahuasca. Since 2020, he has been working with colleagues to manifest a long-term dream, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy dedicated to the study of plant medicines, consciousness, preservation of indigenous knowledge, and revisioning of humanity's relationship with nature. McKenna is author or co-author of six books and over 50 scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals. His website is mckenna.academy. And finally, our fourth guest, Stephen Gray, is an author, editor, and event organizer and speaker and ceremony leader. He has been deeply involved with spiritual practices and sacramental or psychedelic medicine work 
for over 40 years, including Tibetan Buddhism, the Native American Church, and ayahuasca. Gray is the main organizer of the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. He's the author of Returning to Sacred World, a spiritual toolkit for the emerging reality, and Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. Along with the other 26 contributors, Mr. Gray is both the editor and a contributor to this book, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World. And his website, if you'd like to learn more about him and his work, is stephengrayvision.com. Banyan community, please join me in a warm welcome for all of our distinguished guests today. Hello, everybody. Welcome. So Stephen, um, in the acknowledgments at the beginning of the book, you mentioned how instrumental Chris Bache was in this book becoming a reality. I'm wondering if you can just share with our audience a bit of the story uh, about the genesis or the seed that sort of sparked this book to come into to being. Sure. Um, well, it's been coming for perhaps 50 years, for one thing, uh, through all the medicine work and spiritual practices and study that I've been involved with in all these years. Uh, and uh, I connected to Chris Bache. I can't remember how I first heard about him, but uh, invited him to come and speak at our conference in 2018. And then again, and it was so amazing that we invited or I invited him back for 2019 and I've just generally kept in touch with him. And uh, when I was thinking uh, about this book, I wasn't quite sure if I was going to proceed or not actually. And I was having a phone conversation with Chris and told him that that was sort of where I was at, a little, you know, not quite sure yet. And he said, well, Stephen, if you proceed with that, I will contribute at least a chapter. And that was the trigger for me. As soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, green light, no, no reverse gear anymore at this point, because uh, Chris, uh, to my mind, is um, a brilliant, uh, brilliantly insightful gentleman uh, whose experience, uh, as detailed in that book, is incredible. Wonderful. Okay, thank you. Now, we're going to go through, I've got some questions. Each one of our panelists today, just so our audience knows, uh, contributed an essay to this wonderful book. And it really is fantastic. I highly recommend it to people. Um, so Belinda, your, your, uh, your essay is titled The Turning of the Soil. And uh, you write at the start that your chapter provides a basic inner standing of the prophecy of the eagle and the condor. So I wonder if first you can clarify for people, what do you mean by that term, inner standing? Inner standing really implies the innate knowing of our inner being, of who we are, and it's really heart-centered knowing. Um, so when we do inner stand something, we actually have a heart connection to that space. Beautiful. Thank you. And, and can you, for those who don't know, what is, what is the prophecy of the eagle and the condor? The prophecy of the eagle and the condor is a prophetic belief that is known among indigenous people of the Americas. Um, in the book, I share the prophecy of the Hopi, which are located here in it, the state of Arizona, um, as well as the Andean traditions of Peru. The eagle represents the people of the north or the people of the mind with technology. And the condor represents the people of the south, which are the people of the heart. And the prophecy talks about a great time of change and an awakening, which I believe this 
time period that we are in right now is that that time frame. Um, in our third dimensional reality, um, we don't have to look very far to see this. If we look around, we can see that in our the breakdowns in our healthcare system and our political uh, systems, as an example. It is also a reminder that um, if we don't change the behaviors that exist around us in our communities, then we will repeat history. You know, there's that adage that if we don't change things, then, then history will repeat itself. But it's also um, the unification of humanity to set us, it's time to set aside our differences in order for humanity to heal. And that's really what the prophecy and the ego of the condor uh, speaks to. And what role do you do you see psychedelics and plant medicines playing in this in this time? It is a it, it plays a big role. I, I believe um, plant medicines have been put on this earth for the healing of humanity, and many times that I have sat with the sacred plant medicines. This is something that these medicines have taught me. Um, and it is a time that we also need to have reverence for these sacred plant medicines. I don't refer to them as drugs or ethnogens. And uh, so I, I believe that they do have a very important role in the healing of humanity at this point in time. One of the things I really liked about your essay, um, there's a section titled, We Are, All, we Are Related. And you write about respect and reverence for all beings and how this needs to apply to the sacred plant medicines. I'm just going to share a little quote and then ask you a question. You write, as I travel the world and speak on topics related to psychedelics, I find Western society has forgotten this interconnectedness, not only the interconnectedness between themselves and their external environment, but with their inner selves. Without this inner standing, we will continue to experience the over-commodification of these sacred plant medicines. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little about that over-commodification. And you also refer to this uh, entitlement that is so prevalent in our Western society. And can you talk a little bit about um, the indigenous and Native American teachings that help to address that? Yeah, that's a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> The entitlement really um, has to do with the um, accessibility of these sacred plant medicines. You know, for many of us that come from indigenous communities and that come from BIPOC communities, which are the marginalized communities, it is very difficult for us to have access um, to these sacred plant medicines for the purpose of healing. So that's really what I was referring to in terms of the entitlement for non-Indigenous people, it's very accessible to them. You know, they have the finances, they have the resources to access these medicines. And, and so that is really what I, I, I speak to in that, um, to that point. Um, and then repeat what the second question was. Well, the, the second part is really about, um, I guess I was interested in, in the, the treatment and the reverence uh, mm -hmm. for these plants and how, and how one should approach them. Sure, sure. Um, sacred plant medicines and, and plants in general are really sacred uh, sentient beings um, and they need to have the reverence and respect paid to them for helping us heal um, as humanity. Not only just sacred plant medicines, but plants in general. 
And typically, you know, for many of the cultures of the two cultures that I belong to, when we harvest plants for medicinal purposes, um, it's going out and actually holding prayer and respect and speaking to the plants as if it was a grandmother or a grandfather um, and asking permission to take it. Um, in return, we offer something back to the plant um, for allowing us to take it. And then even when we're in ceremony, um, whether it's natural plant medicines or synthetic medicines that are being utilized, say in a clinical setting or for research purposes, the same reverence and gratitude needs to be held for these sacred plant medicines um, so that you know they can do the work that they were given to us for and created um, for. I know that a lot of times people have questions about, well, what's the difference between the natural um, medicines and the synthetic? Um, when we really get down to the basic elements, they all come from the same elements. And so they have that same essence tied to them. And um, so it, it's really important that we, we look at how we're treating these medicines because we want them to be around for not only this generation, but the next generations and the seven generations to come so that healing can, can happen in not only indigenous communities, but all of our communities. Right. When you talked about offering something back to the plant, that reminded me about, you mentioned the teachings around reciprocity. I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit about this concept of reciprocity and how, how we can apply that in the way we live our lives. Yes, you know, from the Andean teachings, there's a word called Aini, and Aini represents sacred reciprocity. Um, and from what I understand, the meaning of this word is that today for me, tomorrow for you. And so there's always this sacred exchange back and forth. And Aini also involves a relationship between mankind, the earth and the universe, everything that exists around us. Um, and when we practice reciprocity, it's kind of that when we give, put something out there, it comes back to us. Um, the other thing that I also wanted to point out, it also works in the same way with um, the um, businesses that are being created that are creating synthetic um, sacred medicines, you know, um, those businesses and investors in those businesses really need to be mindful about also giving back to these communities who have been stewards of these medicines. Um, and sometimes they struggle with that. What is it that we got to give back to them? And I think building a relationship is really key to finding what those answers are. Um, so that's really what I was referring to in terms of um, sacred reciprocity and sacred reciprocity can be come in a myriad of forms. It could be um, in the form of sacred activism, you know, advocating and being a good ally for indigenous people. Um, and I, I believe that's what um, uh, Dennis does, you know, in some of the work that he does. It's also being a good relative when it comes to advocating for, say, financial resources for mental health in our communities. It's about educating oneself of, of the social, um, uh, ecological and political issues that face indigenous people uh, that are, have been guardians of these sacred medicines. So those are some forms of reciprocity. Thank you. And I, I just have one, one question, one more question for you, Belinda. I, I wanted to ask you about the role that you see women playing going forward in the healing and transformation of our planet. One of the um, points that I talk about in, in the book is about 
um, being the five-fingered people. Um, we as humanity are the five-fingered people. In my culture, they talk about that. And being a five-fingered person, being human, we have the ability to access the heavens through the crown of our head. But we also have the ability to have our feet upon the earth so that we become that channel of those energies that move back and forth. And the role of women is much more important because as women, we are the creators. We are the creators of children. We are the creators of everything that exists, but we're also the nurturers. We are the ones that play a role in the healing of our communities. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen this in the last few years, but every time, you know, I see something happening on at TV um, and, um, you know, different types of advocacy that's going on, it's the women that are the front line, you know, the mothers, the grandmothers, the sisters, the aunties that are really out there advocating for the betterment of their communities. And so women do have a big responsibility and a role um, for indigenous communities that come from matrilinear societies, like my two lineages are, it becomes much more important. And we have roles and clans in which um, those roles and responsibilities become even more heightened. For instance, in my Diné culture, I come from the Khanaatni people, which is the one who walks around. And this is one of the four sacred clans of the Diné people. And the responsibility of Khanaatni people are to be the healers. So it's our responsibility to learn the, the ceremonial ways and the traditions and continue to pass that down orally from one generation to the next. So that's an example of that. Thank you so much, Belinda. And, and we'll, we look forward to having you weigh in again with some of the group discussion. And I, I'm going to now bring my um, speaker phone on my, on my cell phone here up to the mic. Are you there, Chris? I'm here. I'm here. Um, Chris, the, your chapter, it's the, the leading chapter in the book, and it's called The Birth of the Human Future. Um, future Human. Oh, sorry. The birth of the future human. My, my bad. And, uh, and uh, uh, can you explain to our audience so they have a bit of context about the 20 the year psychedelic odyssey that you undertook from 79 to 99? Well, let me just put this in context. Uh, mine has been an unusual life of that. I haven't been involved in scientific research. I haven't been involved in deep collaborative projects. Uh, I basically have made my living as a teacher in a philosophy religious studies department. But my passion in life, in my personal life, was the systematic exploration of the deep limits of consciousness with psychedelics. And I happened to choose an unusually uh, intense practice format, which gave me over 20 years an unusual trajectory. There's all of us, so everyone in the conference are psychedelic or psychonauts in so many ways. And there's so many ways to cross the boundaries and so many ways to step through. And my way is just one more way of stepping through. And much to my surprise, uh, a core theme of my work after about uh, five years, starting about 30 years ago, was the transformation that humanity is undergoing. Humanity is coming into a, a time of profound uh, tipping point, transformation. Uh, it was like all the 
the rivers of history were coming together and flowing into a single canyon. Uh, uh, a before and after time, a change of history. And this caught me completely by surprise because at the time when this started, I was still thinking you do this psychedelic work for personal transformation. But this was tapping into a collective transformation, a collective story. And so that became part of my experience. The little stably over years, it kept coming back in. And it would be a long story uh, to lay it out, but I, you know, I lay it out in the book as best I can. Uh, time became porous in my journey, as it does for many of us when we go into these deep journeys. Time became porous. I, I moved in and out of the future, in and out of what I came to call whole uh, deep time. Uh, experienced the evolution of humanity from a perspective uh, of future time. And uh, I know how strange this sounds to my scientifically trained colleagues, but to my psychedelic colleagues, I know that they understand these things because I don't think there's anything unique to my experience. It's just a particular person's experiencing of what many of us are experiencing, I think, when we move into deeper entry into the mind of our species, the mind of our planet, we feel this this change it's welling up underneath us that we're coming into. And uh, then as part of this, five years later, I had an experience and I am was ecologically naive. I mean, this was 30 years ago, right? I'm, I'm not, this is pre-climate change, pre-awareness of this sort, just you know, a professor of religious studies. I had this deep experience once of what I can only describe as thinking into the mind of our species, into the heart and mind of our species, billions of people, and experiencing a cataclysmic collapse of our society, of our culture, of our way of life, just a, a, a loss of control, an implosion, reaching critical mass, and then we make the transition through and when we made the transition through, at least from my visionary experience, we had been profoundly changed by the crisis that we had just endured. Something about this crisis changed us, the way we were drawn to respond to it so deeply. It changed us. It, un it unleashed something profoundly good in us that propelled us into the uh, future human. The next, which I believe is... And again, many people having this experience, they give it by different names. So it's just the idea that humanity is coming to the next human, the next iteration of human intelligence, the, the spirit, a deeper spiritualization, a soul manifestation of, of human evolution. And I think that the other, one of the other things given me is an understanding that reincarnation is coming to a combustion point. Uh, there's a, an acceleration taking place that I think there is some type of super integration of our former lives, which is taking place at the soul level. And just as the world is trying to become one critically, we are trying to become one. And I think in this process, we are giving birth not only into a new culture outside of us, 
but a new identity of humanity, a soul identity. I think the soul is waking up in history. Uh, at least that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it's not my story. It's just what was poured into me, and that's all I have to offer is what was given me for whatever it's worth. It's one of those one of those things that even though I haven't directly experienced that, there, it's something about it that resonates uh, on a deeper human level, I think. I, I'm wondering, one of the things you say, I'm just going to share a quote, Chris, and then I've got a question for you. You say that uh, sharing one's visionary experiences is a tricky business. However meaningful my psychedelic experiences are to me, they are naturally less meaningful to others. I hope my experiences will speak to you, but whether they do or not will largely depend on two things. The first is whether you trust the potential of psychedelic states to yield true insights into our universe. And the other is whether my experiences are mirrored in the experiences of other psychedelic explorers. So I'm wondering, you kind of hinted that maybe there have been other psychedelic explorers that have had similar experiences. Can you comment on on how often this kind of experience or insight is is come upon by other uh, explorers i can share my personal impressions but that's just personal impressions you know what would be more important is maybe at a conference or two we begin to really kind of do some poll taking of people there but when i talk about these things to groups i have many people who come up to me and say Yes, I've experienced this too. Not quite like you did, but I've experienced this coming to a, a turning point, this accelerating taking place. So that happens enough, and it seems to me that I think we're experiencing kind of something along the lines of an archetypal shift, a deeper, a deep trans uh, arc shift. And I think many people have this experience. They bump up against it in different ways. Uh, there are contemplatives, uh, indigenous peoples, non-psychedelic peoples who see the significance of the time that we are entering. So I think what, in my experience, I'm just bumping up into something that's registering in all sorts of people's lives all over the place. But wouldn't it be nice to have a more detailed assessment of how true that may be? Indeed. Yeah. One of the things that really... Um, stood out to me was your description of when you in your visions when you actually went into this experience of the future human the the sort of the feeling that you got from that society can you describe for our audience a bit of, about your experience of what the human future uh, sorry the future human <laughs> looked like it felt like what yeah. was that like i'll give my best um it's not a vision, it's a being tuned. It's, it's entering into the experience of the underlying blueprint of it. So that's what I mean by the, uh, the archetype of it. it. It's going into future time <clears throat> and experiencing the underlying condition of the human form in that future aggregate time. And this being so beautiful, so extraordinary, beautiful, hard, all our wounds, all the wounds of history, all the human wounds, all the terrible things we've done to each other, all of the healed, the heart completely healed, 
mind radically open, just and able to enter into and maintain conscious communion with higher, deeper forms of consciousness in the universe, all sorts of open channels open. It wasn't what we have seen or believed or, or been shown in Christ as the firstborn of the future, of the Buddha, the awakened one, of the prophet. It, these are visions of an awakened soul. And I think what's happening is it's for all of us, just touching it. I've only, I've only been in, immersed in it maybe five, six times, three times deeply. And honestly, life-changing. It makes everything make so much sense. It, it, it was the capstone of years and years of experiencing the reincarnation cycles and cycles and, and episodes and the, the evolutionary trajectory of, of human culture and to sort of see that all of this has these deeper underlying currents which are now we are i think we're being very much in an underlying current of purification clearing the past dealing with the past inheriting the crime of the past but we're we're purifying those and in the process giving birth to a new synthesis of time in the human species, because if, if all our lives are integrated into a single consciousness, that means the time of that integrated being is massive. And so another way of thinking about what, what the future human is, it's a completely different way of being in the universe. It holds hundreds of thousands of years at its lifetime. And I think it, it's not just awakening of the heart and awakening of the mind, uh, but our senses, our physical senses, are exponentially increased in sensitivity. And it's not because of the magic, it's just a, a theory that we have, that our senses are, are basically biochemically driven, the result of chemical and electrical impulses and whatnot, whatnot. But the more consciousness, the stronger consciousness is in the body, a heightened and augmented one senses become. And so I think the future human is not just an awakened human in all the deepest spiritual sense and a, an awakened in the heart and an embodied. I mean, it's not like reach enlightenment and leave, go to heaven. It's embodied in the body. All of this coming into and the bliss is overwhelming. So overwhelming and so humbling. Chris, final question for you. What, if any, did, did you get any indication in these journeys as to what role psychedelics have to play in, in uh, moving towards this uh, future human uh, consciousness? Yeah. You know, I think about that, and it's not because there have been special messages given to me in my visionary work about psychedelics, but of course I'm accessing these experiences with psychedelics. I'm with a community of brothers and sisters from all sorts of different backgrounds who are entering into deeper states of awareness, deeper states, I think, of responsibility and engagement coming out of these experiences. And so I... I, I since I believe the pressure is building and history is speeding up and 
psychedelics are about the, the, a speeding up of the opening of, of consciousness to the deeper levels, surely it has some part to play in this crisis that we're coming into. It has a healing part to play. It's very, it can really help us heal the energies that's moving inside us. It has a spiritual awakening part to play. It can open us to our roots in this cosmic universe and our, our blessed part. And I think it opens us it can open us into the deep cosmic mystery. We can now have systematic access to levels of the universe that we could only dream of having access to 200 years ago. The ancient civilizations had it in pieces. We have this opportunity we're stepping through. Uh, and so I, I think it's one of many. There's so many things that are pouring into the present, right? Women's movement, science, culmination, this, the internationalization, the, so many things are pouring into the present. I think psychedelics is just ice that seasons the stew. <laughs> I love it. The spice that's psychedelics is just the spice that seasons the stew. That's great. <laughs> well, Chris Beach, thank you. And uh, please hold on the line. We're, we'll, we'll bring you back in in a little bit here. Uh, but thank you so much for sharing, sharing your insights. Dennis, you're the 11th chapter in the book, and it's called Beyond Measure, Reflections on Experienced Realities in an Awakening Universe. You provide a critique of scientific, rationalist, reductionist thinking, which you term in this naturism. And you speak to what you call the primacy of experience. Can you explain to our audience what you mean by this, the primacy of experience? What I meant by the primacy of experience in that essay, which is basically that experience is all we have. You know, we are in the moment uh, and experience is, uh, is our state of consciousness at any, at any one time. You know, uh, what the past is gone, the future hasn't happened yet. So we are in this really eternal present. And although we spend a great deal of time sort of trying to break out of that, the fact is, you know, that, that we depend on memories to construct our past, you know, and memories are always incomplete. Memories are a fantasy. They're a reconstruction of things that we have experienced and, or that we think we've experienced, that we recall the future hasn't happened yet, although we, we spend a great deal of time anticipating the future, imagining what it will be like, and in some ways living in the future in, in terms of our mindset. What this does is, in a certain sense, though, it decouples us from the moment, the, the, the present of our existence, which is really really all there is, you know, uh, if you think about it, we have just this experience of, of the moment. And I think it's important to recognize that in a certain way. And, you know, I mean, uh, Ram Das said it in his book, be here now, you know, it's important to be here now because being here now is really all we have, you know, and, and that's what I meant by the primacy of experience. And, you know, it comes up in conversations about psychedelic experiences. You know, I just 
was recently at a conference in the UK that was on the topic of entities, you know, the sentient entities that you that you encounter in psychedelic uh, states and other types of altered states. And, uh, you know, one of the perpetual questions here is these entities which come to us as though they were outside intelligences uh, or, or, you know, rather than being part of ourselves, some part of ourselves that we experience as not ourselves. Uh, and it doesn't really matter. I think those questions are very hard hard to answer. But the question that perpetually comes up is, are these things real? Are these intelligences real? Are these experiences you have real? Well, <laughs> what I say is anything you experience is real. It's real in the sense that it can be experienced. And then you can get into the weeds about does it come from inside or outside, and what do those terms actually mean? You know, because one thing that psychedelics do teach us is that there is really, you know, it's all one. There are these artificial boundaries between the self and the rest of the cosmos are part of the what what is sometimes popularly called the or now the current term is the default mode network, but it's part of this construction that our brain creates for itself so that in order to make the world comprehensible. So the question about your experiences, anything you experience is real in that it can be experienced. Is it real in some sub-objective sense? That's a tougher question to answer. You know, I, I am reminded of uh, what the famous... Uh, UFO expert uh, J. Allen Hynek was responded when he was asked, well, uh, you know, you've been researching UFOs for 20 years. Are UFOs real? And he said, well, I don't know if UFOs are real, but I'm 100% certain that UFO experiences are real. And I think that's an important distinction. And I think you could say much the same about the entities and the things that you encounter in psychedelic states. Yes, they're real. They're experienced. Are they objectively real? That's another question. Or do they come entirely from within the mind or the collective unconscious? That's another question. And another question about that is, does it matter? You know, you have these experiences. Does it matter where it comes from? I think a more useful question to ask is, is the information useful? Are the insights that you derive from these altered experiences useful in some way? You know, is the, does the information appear to be valid and uh, influence the way that we, you know, integrate that and, and move forward? perhaps in the way that we live our lives or the changes we make. So that's, I think that's what I meant by that primacy of experience observation. I want to, I want to share a quote and then ask you another question, Dennis, you write, um, uh, speaking about science, you say, this is, this is the great power of science. 
its ability to correct its assumptions as additional data becomes available. While science has great explanatory power as a result of this self-correcting methodology, it is also prone to a certain arrogance. The assumption that we've quote unquote, pretty much got this reality thing figured out often permeates and in my opinion, cripples the scientific endeavor. Can we talk a little bit about this assumption that you see in science and how psychedelics, how plant medicines or sacraments can play a part in addressing our human arrogance or the arrogance in found in scientific communities, some scientific communities? Sure, sure. So science is by definition, it's reductionist, right? It looks for the, it looks to explain what it studies, phenomena in nature, basically, with the most uh, most uh, facile, most, uh, uh, it, it's the whole applications of the, of Oakham's razor, you know, the, the idea that uh, the, the data that explains the phenomenon doesn't have to be elaborated on, you know, if it's a simple, if a simple understanding will do, you don't have to, you don't have to elaborate on that. So by definition, science operates within this framework of reductions, you know, but the, the universe is not reductionist and our experience of the universe isn't really reductionist, you know, it, there's much more to experience uh, just this subjective experience that we were talking about, this experience of being in the moment. We are programmed to bring, to suppress the background, you know, to bring the foreground forward, to focus on what's right in front of us, essentially. But there are important things going on in the background, but science doesn't pay attention to those unless, unless forced to. And in general, we as, uh, you know, westernized, intellectualized, uh, literate, you know, people, uh, by the very nature of the fact that we are literate, we also have been programmed to suppress the background. This happens much less for indigenous people. And I would venture to say also for children, you know, they are much more open to a sort of holistic understanding of uh, this, this moment of experience and that we're all, uh, that we're all suspended in all at all times. But you know, ours is, you know, Western scientifically educated, generally educated people uh, in some ways experienced a kind of an impoverished view because of this training, this, this habit that has been acquired to suppress what's going on in the background. And I think one of the big uh, advantages, one of the things that psychedelics can help us learn is to bring the background forward and uh, pay attention to what's going on in the background because just because you're ignoring it doesn't mean it's not important. And I think, you know, we're now seeing that science, uh, you know, psychedelics can in some ways be even a tool for scientific discovery, a lens through which you could look at the world and perceive things about it that you're normally not aware of. You know, so it opens the mind in that sense. It 
can actually be a, you know, a, a much more holistic learning tool. It's not really used in that way, but if we look at, uh, you know, various instances where, uh, you know, scientists and other people have have actually gained insights about nature as a result of their psychedelic experiences, such as Kerry uh, Mullis, his discoveries about the uh, the polymerase chain reaction for which he won the Nobel Prize. I mean, he freely admits that it was his experiences on LSD and his ability to get down among the molecules, as he put it, and understand these processes. So uh, psychedelics can be an important le lens, essentially, for apprehending the world that we don't uh, that we don't make use of. And then I think the other aspect of of this is that, uh, yeah, science tends toward arrogance and sort of the uh, you know a tendency to think that we have it all figured out. I think psychedelics emphatically and dramatically show us that we only understand a very tiny slice of reality. What, what the, the, the part of reality that science studies is a small part of the total. And it may understand it in very great detail, you know, and it, it, it may, I mean, it's useful in that sense. It's useful at looking at processes in very great detail kind of sussing out how they work you know but it does so at the at the expense of a vast realm of of potential knowing that is that you know we just don't deal with it that, that is not is not known to us and you know i think i think one of the lessons that comes from psychedelics is this reminder to be humble to remember how little we know not how much we know we know from the standpoint of humanity we think we know a lot from the standpoint of the universe we know very very little and uh, i think one of the big take-home lessons at least for me of psychedelics is remember how little you know there's no place for arrogance here. There's a lot of room for humility, you know, because if you acknowledge that, some people might say, well, you know, we can never understand the universe. It's totally beyond us, you know. That's okay. It's probably true. We never will get the full picture. That doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile to keep asking questions, keep learning and keep expanding our understanding you know I, I think also sometimes people who are not scientists and even people who are scientists kind of misunderstand that uh science because of its very nature asking questions developing hypotheses and then testing those against the available data you never, uh, an issue is never settled in science. You never prove anything in science. You can only not disprove things. And uh, there's always the potential for more data to come in as you learn more that will completely overturn your understanding or at least radically force you to radically change it. That's how science progresses. You know, it's one of the few human endeavors that's open to this idea 
of of self-correction you know uh if if you don't accept you know if you accept a set of principles that can't be tested a set of uh, suppositions about the cosmos that are not open to questioning then you don't have science anymore you have a religion you know and all uh, with all due respect to religion, that's fine. But one of the one of the things about religion is you you know there you have dogmas that are not questioned. You're supposed to accept them on faith. That's hard for scientists to do, you know, because uh, their their uh, whole uh, intellectual uh, you know stance is to develop ideas and then basically try like hell to demolish your theories. That's how it should, that's how it should proceed. Uh, that's not always how it does proceed in this age of big science. And, you know, science uh, is ideally it's the search for truth, but, you know, in, in the contemporary world, you, many other considerations go into the practice of science. So, Thank you so much. Now, uh, I want to I want to ask Stephen a question, and then we'll open it up to a few audience questions. I'm just watching our time here. So, Stephen, um, the the second chapter of the book, you with other contributors give an outline of the great medicines, as you call them, and I was interested reading about each of them. Surprisingly, the one that caught my attention, and I know this is a, a topic you've written a, another book on, uh, was cannabis. And you tell us that it is not technically considered a psychedelic, but that quotes, when understood and used skillfully, cannabis deserves the label. Can you can you explain uh, this for us and illuminate the power of cannabis as a medicine or a sacrament for peace, as you call it? Yeah, thanks for that question, Ross. Um, and in case I don't get a chance to say anything later, I just want to thank uh, Banyan and you and Jacob for putting this together and the other three people that have preceded me here. Uh, it's just been wonderful to listen to uh, the things that Belinda and uh, Chris and Dennis have had to say about all this. Um, right, so um, yes, technically, uh, by some kind of um, science, you know, science medical definition, cannabis is not a psychedelic. But um, the hypothesis here is that uh, um, the word psychedelic uh, from the Greek means soul or mind manifesting. Um, and the other word often used for these substances is entheogens. Um, and that's another word, or, you know, compound word from the Greek that means generating the divine within. And I believe when understood and used properly, um, optimally, cannabis <clears throat> has the potential to help people um, open into those states. It, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, it doesn't have the same kind of otherworldly qualities, uh, experiences that, you know, places that people like Chris Beige have gone, for example. Um, Dennis McKenna has told stories about uh, um, looking down at the planet, you know, and um, and uh, um, a voice says, "You monkeys down there think you're running things. You don't, right, Dennis?" Anyway, um, uh, uh, but but cannabis is more, you know, what Chris talk, talked about. One of the things that he talked about uh, in answering your questions, Ross, um, was that the future human. 
uh, is it's about embodiment as well. It's, it's a sort of a total holistic mind body integrated experience of oneself. And again, used properly. And this is really key because I honestly, with all respect, I don't think most people do know this about cannabis, although it's changing, thank God, um, or goddess. Um, but, uh, it, if you can quiet your mind enough, you know, cannabis has these, you know, what many people would consider remarkable effects of stimulating creative thinking or deepening you into particular experiences that Buddhists might call one-pointed meditation or form-based um, meditation, so to speak, which could be anything really. Um, you could potentially get deeper into it. However, if you can quiet your mind enough, and that's a challenge for, for most of us, including myself, um, uh, then uh, the amplification effect that it has. Some psychedelics are sometimes referred to as non-specific or unspecific amplifiers. Cannabis is almost the definition of a of an unspecific or non-specific amplifier in my in my view, in the sense that uh, if you can, uh, as uh, Dennis's brother Terence used to say about the psychedelics, if you sit down, shut up, and pay attention, um, uh, which is almost the definition of meditation. It doesn't necessarily have to be sitting down, literally, but if you can uh, calm your mind enough uh, to allow that amplification to pr uh, affect, to uh, uh, go to work, as it were, cannabis can deepen you into the now moment. You know, Dennis talked about that, uh, you know, the, the eternal now or the be here now aspect of it. So the, the, the wisdom journey that we're on requires us to uh, be enlightened, so to speak, in this body, right? As Chris said, you know, it's not about uh, checking out and, you know, to heaven, so to speak. It's how we um, embody the wisdom, the eternal wisdom, if you will, into this body. Uh, in my, I think it was in my cannabis book, I quoted uh, the mystic philosopher, poet, priest, uh, um, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who said, physical energy must be mastered for spiritual energy, energy to manifest, more or less those words. And so cannabis has that potential uh, to allow us to uh, open up the body system and the mind system in sync, so to speak, and allow us to deepen our connection into the present. Now, it may have otherworldly qualities as well in your experience, uh, uh, but it, it definitely has that potential. Do you do you see um, any issues now that now that cannabis is legalized here in Canada and, and in many states in the United States? What's your take on that? Is that is that something that's going to be really good for society? Are there any warnings that you see in terms of it being overused or misused? Uh, gee, that's a tough question. Um, you know, and as Dennis says about the psychedelics, you're supposed to know less, not more. <laughs> um, and uh, so, uh, you know, and was it Plato that said the only thing I know is I know I don't know anything, you know? Um, so I, I, I don't actually know, but um, uh, let me put it this way. Uh, I think that was already the case before legalization in the Western cultures is that most people, I say most, you know, qualified most, uh, did not know about or practice or experience these deeper 
qualities that cannabis has the potential to open one up into. And that was the motivation behind the book, actually, uh, was gathering people to speak about cannabis as a spiritual ally. Uh, so I don't actually know exactly what the effects of legalization are. Certainly, it uh, you know legalization has uh, has the effect of destigmatizing cannabis for a lot of people and that's probably a good thing uh, as with the uh, other psychedelics uh, commodification um, uh, uh, you know is an issue as well uh, for example I I sometimes uh, deal with a an under under the table grower um, and he says most people want the couch lock heavy duty indica type cannabises and that's where the market is uh where whereas the, the kind of work that we're talking about here i think it requires uh a more uh what would you say spacious um uplifting and almost airy uh kinds of strains so um yeah, the marketplace is determining the direction of that to a large degree. So it's just a matter of continuing with sharing ideas and educating, really. And hopefully people will get it and have these experiences. Uh, and that is happening. You know, we have these wonderful cannabis ceremonies at our conference and uh, yeah, as part of the conference. And you know, people almost uniformely go wow, I thought, well, that was incredible. I had such a deep experience. I, and oftentimes they say they, they didn't even know that cannabis, you could have those kinds of experiences on cannabis. And people say, was that just cannabis or did you mix something else in there? You know, no, this is cannabis. It's a powerful, sacred medicine if you know how to work with it. Thank you. Um, and I just want to thank all of you for sharing your wisdom. And and a big thanks to our live audience for being so engaged and, and submitting your questions as well. So we're going to get to a few of those now. Okay, so there's a question from Sasha. Um, it was a question about uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies. And I don't know the quote myself, but uh, it was something from Dr. McKenna, um, something to do with patient abuse sometimes being necessary in the context of psychedelic therapy. And uh, Sasha was just looking for a comment on that quote. I don't know if you know the quote that's being referred to, Dennis. Actually, I don't. I, I don't think I have ever advocated that there was a place in psychedelic therapy for, uh, for abuse of patients. Uh, you know, if yeah, sometimes I've said that, that uh, ayahuasca can be a stern teacher, you know, and it often presents in a feminine form, whether or not, but it's kind of like your wise grandmother, mm -hmm. you know, who has nothing but compassion and your best interests at heart. But if it need, if you need to be slapped upside the head, it will do that. I'm talking about the medicine, not the therapist. <laughs> right. Medicine can be very hard on you. I am not sure that I said if uh, that there was a place for, uh, uh, okay, some people, yeah, I mean, that that's what I said. I said sometimes people got to get slapped upside the head. I don't say it's a bad thing. I'm talking about the medicine giving us the slap 
upside the head. Yeah. Therapy. So yeah, these, there's a little bit of a debate going on in the chat here and it sounds like it's a misunderstanding about the context. You're talking about the medicine doing the slapping, not the therapist. The medicine can give you a slap on the head. The therapist could, yeah. And I think uh, I've seen, she showed the post. So that's, that's what it was in reference to. Uh, uh, yeah. That's, that's what it was in reference to therapists. Uh, you know, by and large, under most circumstances, they don't really have to, you know, they shouldn't abuse their patients. Obviously, they don't even need to touch their patients, you know. And uh, I mean, some therapists may disagree, but given all the issues around that, that's probably a good guideline. You know? Thanks for clarifying that. Okay, there's a question from Tom. He, he mentions his preference for the term uh, sacrament versus the word medicine. So do Belinda or any of the other panelists have thoughts on the differences between these terms? Maybe Belinda, if you want to weigh in first. Yes. Um, so there is a difference between medicine from our perspective as Indigenous people. Uh, medicine to us can be life experiences. It could be plants that we utilize. Um, unfortunately, we live in a, in a, in a time, and I'm, when I say we, I'm referring it to myself as a Native American and Indigenous person, um, where the legal definitions of religion and the use of the word sacrament comes in to that, um, which it does not accommodate um, Native American spirituality, beliefs, and values, practices, and it is really based on Euro-Christian values and norms. And, you know, to, even in 2022, we still have to deal with those types of issues, even though we are original people of these lands. Um, so I, I think it's more of a, the way that we use that word medicine versus ethnogens in, in the context. We're probably talking about the same thing. It's just a different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from my point of view, it's important to keep your eyes on the prize, as it were, and not get too hung up on uh, particular words because they are interpreted so differently by everybody or so many different people. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think these terminologies are uh, can be loosely applied, like the the term psychedelic, you know, which which is a good term in some ways to describe these medicines or these these substances uh, because it means mind manifesting and it, they certainly man manifest the mind and they often manifest it in a variety of ways. So it's, but it's a vague term. I mean, yeah, it manifests the mind, not always in the way that you want it, but, <laughs> but it, it's useful in that sense. I have a, a bit of a problem with, uh, with both sacrament and entheogen. I think, these two terms really depend on the context in which they're used. If they're used in a religious context, then maybe you can call them the sacraments or entheogens. Entheogens mm -hmm. meaning bringing out, manifesting the God within. But this has a you know religious context to it, which is fine in that context. But psychedelics don't have to be used in a religious context. And mm -hmm. when they're not, does that mean that they are entheogens or sacraments? I don't think so. But they're still psychedelics because they're manifesting the mind. Yeah. 
So uh, yeah. terminology is important. Yes. Mm. I, I agree with you about the limitations of the term entheogens, uh, Dennis. It was a, a sort of a um, ad hoc, so to speak, not exactly ad hoc, but um, the guys that came up with it at 30 or 40 years ago were reacting to the fact that the word psychedelics had been so overused and corrupted at that time. It yeah. was their attempt to put it back on a you know better sense but i think perhaps psych the term psychedelics has come far enough from the 60s and 70s that it doesn't have the same baggage anymore hopefully yeah i mean if you look at something like uh, kava for example which is certainly mm -hmm. not a psychedelic but in the context in which it's used you could say it's an entheogen you know, mm -hmm. uh, because it, it's used in a religious context. So terminology is important, but as you say, Stephen, we can get hung up in terminology and, uh, you know, that's not productive either. We just have to be careful. I mean, mm -hmm. I have tended in later years to, to use a strict definition of psychedelics as kind of as a trope and by saying psychedelics under my strict reductionist uh, pharmacological perspective is it's got to be a 5-HT2A agonist. You know, that's the common mechanism that ties all these, what's sometimes called the classical psychedelics together, DMT, LSD, psilocybin, all of these things, they're, they're serotonin 2A agonists. So, you know, but that's like a very uh, strict definition. And, but I, I, you know, I sometimes like to approach to define them that way. I, I think in, in some correspondence uh, with Tom Lane, he objected to me calling MDMA a psychedelic. And he was right. If I, if, because it isn't strictly speaking under this definition that, but if I said it was in some lecture or something, then I made a mistake. But uh, uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's it, it's a psychedelic in that it's mind manifesting. It's certainly not serotonin 5-HT2A agonist. So, you know, I, fluid, shall we say. <laughs> Chris Bache has mm -hmm. been patiently standing mm -hmm. in here on the phone. And I, so I want to address this question to him first and then let others weigh in. Are you still with us, Chris? I'm here. Can uh, you hear me? Yes, yes. Okay, so there's a question yeah. here from Scott. He says, question for all. Can psychedelics save the world under a non-medical model, i.e., do we need legalization for the change that is needed in the world? <laughs> Oh, well, a lot of ramifications to that question. We need the disciplined use of psychedelics, of course, and we need a cultural wise use of psychedelics. I think we need all the forms that are emerging. We need the therapeutic psychedelics. We also need the indigenous, the uh, indigenous use of psychedelics. So it goes beyond simply healing the wounds of the personal psyche, but goes into a deeper cosmic embrace. So my sense is that uh, psychedelics will have, if we allow them, will have many roles uh, in the, to play in the years ahead. And uh, it's 
teach psychedelic has its own character, its qualities, its, its way of impacting and it, particularly strengths for it. So, yeah. Thank you. That's very, very concise and very clear. Thank you, Chris, so much. Do, do any of the other folks uh, have, have anything they want to say on this one? I'll just say I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you can't hear, but Chris is laughing too. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I don't think you have to medicalize psychedelics to, uh, you know, uh, in, in most cases. I mean, I, I, th I think that psychedelic, natural psychedelic medicines should be lightly regulated if regulated at all mm. you know uh, indigenous people were able to be the stewards of mm. psychedelic knowledge and wisdom for 10,000 years before there was an FDA around to tell them they couldn't do that you know I think that the medicines now when it comes to synthetic psychedelics and using them in clinical contexts for specific purposes therapeutic purposes, I think that's fine. That's probably not the way that most people will come to psychedelics, you know, mm -hmm. come to it from a, from a different direction. So, you know, I, I think that access to psychedelics should be as the, the, the regulation of psych, the emphasis should not be on the regulation of the substances. The emphasis should be on the education of the people that might want to use these substances. Mm -hmm. They could approach, they should approach it from a place of informed and informed perspective. And they should be assisted in making choices, the right choices in terms of how to use them, when to use them, which ones to use, but they shouldn't have to labor under a framework of prohibition or these things are not available to you, you know, mm -hmm. always the, you know, it's law so far that the, the, you know, the emphasis has been on regulation of the substances. It should be on education of the users so that they make uh, good choices and use them basically in the most beneficial way possible, you mm -hmm. know, and whatever context works for them. It may be a religious context. It may be a, a uh, you know ritual context it may be going into the wilderness by yourself and taking them or mm -hmm. the approach that chris beige has taken which is a very individual but very thoughtfully and carefully uh structured way of personal use that does not involve even a social context and i, I think that's fine I mean, I have to admire his courage for doing that, but that's a perfectly uh, legitimate way to approach the use of these substances. You know, at the end of the day, the important dynamic is the interaction between you and the material and the substance. You have to uh, structure the set and setting to make that possible. But at the end of the day, it's a very personal interaction you know belinda any any closing thoughts before we say our goodbyes i think i would agree with many of the points that um dennis had mentioned um from my 
point of perspective is that, you know, indigenous people have, have been the stewards and used these medicines for as long as we have all been alive. And uh, they will continue to use them, whether they're legalized or not, in, the, in a ceremonial context from yeah. which they came from and their origins. So that, that's kind of the point that I wanted to make. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I just want to hold the book up again. Uh, this wonderful panel discussion. Uh, the book is titled How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. It was edited by one of our guests today, Stephen Gray. We're also joined by Belinda Aracho. Aracho. So don't say the I, Ariacho? Yeah, the I is silent. Oh, I didn't know that. I introduced you by Ariacho at the conference. That's all right. <laughs> it seems like you're a little bit used to it. I, I am. Thank yeah. you. Also joined by Dr. Dennis McKenna and Chris Bache. Uh, Chris, I'll just let you say a little goodbye on the phone here since we can't see you. I really have enjoyed our conversation today, folks. It's always a pleasure to get together with you. Dennis, I really appreciate the wisdom behind many of the things, especially you said, in terms of the phenomenology of deep experience and living with deep experiences. Uh, just a wonderful goodbye to everybody, and it's been an honor. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah. And thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Belinda. And thanks to our wonderful Banyan community as usual. So mm -hmm. long, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. 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 Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>